here and welcome to the Standing O podcast. I am excited to introduce you to our very special guest today, Jessica Himes. Jessica is a professional athlete. She's an advocate and she has a superpower for chasing big dreams. Jessica is going to share with us her very unique athletic journey. Having been born with amniotic banding syndrome, which resulted in her right leg being amputated. I loved hearing about her incredibly supportive family and even her story about the first time she realized that strapping on a leg was a little different than everyone else her age. Jessica's resume is very impressive. She's competed in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympic Games as just a senior in high school. She went on to compete for the University of Northern Iowa and she set her first discus world record in the 2019 track season. Jessica went back to the Paralympic Games, this time in Tokyo, where she placed fifth in the discus and set a new American record. The coolest part, as you'll hear in Jessica's story, is that she is just getting started. She shares with us about her mindset, the importance of community, and the central motto to her life, you can find a way. Here is the wonderful Jessica Himes. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for coming on the Standing O podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So I've given like a brief intro of you, but can you share just like who Jessica is, who you are, just a little bit more about your story? Yeah. So I grew up in Swisher, Iowa, just south of Cedar Rapids. I was born with a condition called amniotic banding syndrome, which caused my whole right leg to be deformed at birth. And when I was a year old, my parents decided to amputate just about the ankle height. So I've been wearing prosthetics ever since I got into sports when I was in elementary school, but found my love in track and field when I was 10 years old. And then I eventually made my way into Paris sports and adaptive sports And then made my way into the Paralympic Games in 2016 and then again in 2021. Pretty cool. I love how you just, it's just so easy to share, but I want to know like this little girl that, um, first of all, did you know you like that you were different? Like, did you, when you were little, did you notice that or when did that happen? Yeah, I had it ingrained in me in some sort of subconscious level. Um, for very early on, I mean, I was one of three girls, my family, all very close. And so you know, that was something that was very normal for us. We had, you know, my legs strewn about the house. We played with them. My sisters played hide and seek with my legs around the house. Um, it was a very normal thing for, you know, car rides. My parents said, okay, we're stopping at a gas station, put on your shoes, just put on your leg, you know, get ready to go. And that was very normal for my family. But I knew when we would go to like parks and places in public that people would look at me and I knew I was different because of that. I had something my sisters didn't but I wasn't overly conscious about how different that was until I got to elementary school, you know, got connected with classes and met other folks and realized, okay, I am the only kid in this entire school that has this thing. And there was one time I was probably between second and fourth grade. I was getting up one morning, I was putting my prosthetic on and I stopped for a second. I thought, 
I'm like one of those people you see on the news that is missing a leg and walks around in one of these things. And I just had to sort of an existential moment of, huh, I'm one of those people. Very strange. And then I went on with my day, but that was kind of the journey of me consciously realizing that something was different between me and you know my peers and everyone else I was around. Yeah. Oh, that's such a cute moment though for you. To- <laughs> so, uh, okay. And back to your, what you were <laughs> like, how did you transition to sports? Was it something that like you were just a super active kid and your parents were like, oh my gosh, we need to put you in something. Or was it like you saw stuff on TV and you wanted to do it? Yeah. I was always a very active kid. Um, my sisters and I were always you know, playing games and my older sister was four years older than me. So whenever she started doing something with her school in elementary, I wanted to do the same thing. And my younger sister wanted to do what we were doing. And so I kind of fell into that very naturally. And my, I mean, my prosthetist worked overtime when I was in elementary, getting my prosthetic feet in line. Cause I was always tearing holes through them. Cause I was running around with out shoes on and playing sports and kicking around. So I was always very active. And I, I mean, once I got to elementary school, I tried all the regular, you know, basketball, we did tennis, you know, t-ball, you know, soccer, all those regular things that every other kid does. And I just did them too. Cause my sisters did them. And so I wanted to do the same thing. And I kind of fell into it naturally that way. Very fun. That I like that story about how you, <laughs> my kids with their socks get holes in them 24 <laughs> seven. Imagine getting a new prosthetics, a little bit more expensive than running to target and getting a new pair of socks. <laughs> yeah. You can't quite order off Amazon. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> yeah. Were your, so what I'm hearing is that your family has just always kind of been supportive of you and not tried to make it an excuse or something like set limits for you. Can you like just dig in to that maybe a little bit, like how they supported you? Like, I'm sure there was a learning curve for your parents when it came to like signing you up for basketball or whatnot. Absolutely. My parents did a phenomenal job when I was growing up of making sure that Now, I understood my disability is a part of me, and that is going to affect my daily routine and how I go about things. But if there's something I want to do, I can make it happen. I can find a way to adapt it and find a way to do something that I love. So it was definitely a learning curve for all of us. And, you know, for me, being a baby at the time of, you know, all this going down, I didn't consciously realize what the family was going through. And my parents did not grow up knowing any other disabled people. And at a time where we were living, we didn't know any other disabled folks outside of, you know, older folks with um, diabetes who had amputations from that. So it was a completely new world for them when I was born. And um, they didn't know about my disability before I was born. Nowadays, people with amniotic band syndrome usually do get diagnosed before birth. So they were kind of thrown into that, had no idea what to do. And so there were many years that they had to, you know, really work on the go and figure out, okay, how is this going to work for our family? We have no model to go after. You know, you try to find books on the subject, but every family is so different, every child so different, but they did a great job, you know, making my sisters and I all feel, you know, love in the same way and supported in the same way. And my sisters are fiercely overprotective of me. <laughs> so even as a kid, when, you know, we would come across something that was difficult for me, they had absolutely no problem, you know, stepping up for me, taking, you no know, fielding the questions from the other kids on the playground so I could be a kid for a day or, you know, helping me hobble around when we go to a water park because my prosthetic was not waterproof. So I had to hobble around without it. So they 
they all did a very good job, you know, shielding me from that. And I am sometimes I forget just how much work they put in to make me feel normal and regular, not have to worry about all those outside things. So they, they did a phenomenal job, but it was definitely a learning curve and something that took a long time for all, us to all adjust to. And, you know, it was continually changing too, as I grew up, the model would change and we'd have to rework you know, how we view my disability, how I deal with that. You now as technology changes, how do I approach myself? What is my self view with my disability? Mm. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. I, I love hearing about family dynamics because like I grew up in a very similar, very supportive home. My dad was a, was a coach. So I was a coach's kid and, you know, it was like the older I've gotten and the more I've got like grown in my own profession, I've learned like he did things because like he was educated in them and he studied them and, you know, like he was smart. I always just thought, well, that's just who he is. Right. Um, but I just love hearing like how the family dynamic, I mean, I know for me, the, the trajectory of my life wouldn't have happened without a supportive family. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's exactly how I am. I credit so much of my life and my athletic career and out to my family. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even started sports had I not had their support and, you know, them rallying behind me and picking me up after every fall. It's true. It it just somebody's voice like stick in your mind, like when you're doing things or things are hard. Is there somebody that like you hear them talking to you? Yeah. I mean, it switches between everyone in my family, honestly, just some different points of view. I mean, when something, you know, mechanically goes wrong with my prosthetic, which happens a lot, you know, they're very customized, which means that things, you know, can break and get all messy. You know, when something like that happens, I hear my dad in my head because he is a very mechanical guy and he was always fixing my prosthetics for me and trying to call the prosthetist saying, hey, we can't drive five hours for you to fix this. I have an Allen wrench here. What do I do? So I hear him all the time when I encounter, you know, a physical problem. Okay, how can I fix this? I can make a way. And that's something that even, you know, to this day, he still helps me with all of these problems. So I'm that's something I encounter a lot, a lot of the mechanical challenges of prosthetics, but he is constantly in there. You can find a way. It might look wonky. It might be a little, you know, a little unorthodox, but you can find a way and we'll make it work and we'll be happy with it. <laughs> I love that. What a great motto. You can find a way. There's the, there's the title of your memoir, Jessica. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's talk about like your transition into like competitive sport. So like little girl fun, just playing around, trying all of the things. When did you transition to being really competitive in sport? Yeah, that was a bit of a, a slow burn for a little bit. So I got into track and field when I was 10 and I loved the sport, but I was horrible at it come last in everything. But, you know, I had such a love and passion for it that I didn't really care. You know, the love of the sport outweighed the hate of losing at that point. And after a year of uh, track and field, I finally got a specialized prosthetic that was meant for running and for agility. And that allowed me to actually start being competitive and start, you know, actually letting my body do what it's supposed to do instead of my prosthetic at the time holding me back. And so that allowed me to tap into that competition a little bit and thinking, okay, I really like being able to try to catch someone and you know, have their mark and try to beat that. And that really sparked a bit in me. 
And when I was 11 or between 11 and 12, my family went to an adaptive meet for the first time down in Oklahoma City. And that was a track meet where adaptive athletes of all ages, you know, from five to 70 would compete with tons of disabilities. And at that meet, it was my first time really being around adaptive sports. I didn't realize that was a thing. And so being at that meet and having the new prosthetics, I really, for the first time, felt so in my element of not just showing up to the starting line, being, you know, another person running this race or competing in a throw or a jump, but actually being someone who could try to win the event. That was such a new feeling for me. And that just added to that little fire. Okay. I really want to compete. This sounds so cool. This, you know, the feeling and the adrenaline of knowing that you could try to, you know, beat your personal record, you know, try to be someone else's time. That was really cool to me. And so that kind of burned for a little bit. And I was introduced to the Paralympics in the next few years after this. And that was something that in the back of my mind, I thought, oh man, that would be so cool to do. You know, I don't think it'll really ever happen, but man, if it did. And every year I got a little bit more tuned into the competition and a little bit more, you know, fuel was added to the fire. And Finally, one year, uh, it's 2013, I thought, you know, I could actually make this a possibility. You know, it still seems kind of crazy, kind of out there, but I don't feel as afraid saying this out loud, you know, seeing that the Paralympics is a dream anymore. So that that year was really the start of that change in 2013. I was a freshman in high school and it still, you know, still seemed like a very crazy dream, but um, that year, my parents started to find coaches for me to work with outside of school times. And I really switched from, I enjoy this, this is a fun event to, I enjoy this and I want to be competitive and be competitive at a higher level than I have before. I love so much about that because uh, one, you're still so young, like when you found that transition, but that there is a discrepancy, there is a difference in that, right? Like just enjoying playing and then realizing like you're transitioning to this, like, Oh, I can win this. Yeah. I don't think that's a transition. A lot of kids cognitively make. Yeah. It's not always very conscious and, you know, you don't always have to have the you know drink to win stuff. You can just do yeah. a sport. And love it. But, you know, in order to get to that higher level, you have to have that love established first. And it's really cool for me to look back and notice how long I sat in that I just do this because I love it, you know, in that era. And then I could slowly shift out of that bubble. So having that establishment of those years of just, I'm bad at this, but man, do I love doing it. That honestly helps me so much with not getting burnt out and not having, you know, getting my focus and my worth tied too much with whether or not I win or lose, whether or not I get medals or PRs that really helps establish, you know, where I am and, you know, allows me to actually continue it past, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I love that so much, like connecting just that little kid joy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's really cool. That's a testimony to what what you know we try to say all the time, like just enjoy it and play it. And you know, sometimes like organized sport is great, but you can see the downfalls of it. Mm -hmm. Competitive too soon or it's the kid doing it because the parents making them, not because the kid chose. And I'm hearing from you that you chose like mm -hmm. something that you chose to do. Absolutely. 
Okay. So you were, you made the Paralympics as a high school athlete, right? This was your, I was a senior as the first, the second day of my senior year when I found out I was going. Yeah. And I, like you told this story to us at, she coaches, like your teammates were all excited for you. Yes. Yes. That was so phenomenal. I am I went to the trials that summer and then I didn't know for a while whether or not I was going to go. I thought, you know, I wasn't. And then the second day of my senior year of high school, my parents got the call from the coach and she said, hey, I just made the team. Uh, she's going to fly down to Brazil in two weeks, <laughs> pack your bags. And so my parents came to the high school and they called me down to the office, which I was kind of terrified about because I was like, I don't get called down to the office very often. You know, what did I do? And then my parents were there and they said, Hey, Kathy, Kathy called. And immediately as I said that, I just started bawling because I knew what she was going to say. And I had to go back to the rest of my school day after that, because it was like fourth period when they called. And so I'm like, okay, how do I get back to being a high schooler after knowing that I'm going to make the Paralympic team? And I'm going to go. And I spent the rest of the day, I went back to class and I told one of my friends and then by lunch, everyone was waiting for me to congratulate me and give me hugs. And it was so overwhelming in a wonderful way. I had kind of lost track of how wonderful and established my support system was until that day. And then I realized, okay, this is, you know, it's not just me in my corner. I have such a strong community with me and just see my friends celebrate my accomplishment. It was amazing because it didn't feel like my accomplishment anymore, but like our accomplishment. I mean, so many of my friends there had been uh, with me when I first started track and field back when I was 10. A few of us had signed up to the track club together. And so having that camaraderie and just sitting and chit-chatting about my journey and what this was going to be like, it felt like we were all going to go to the games together and all compete together. And that was, oh, that was amazing. That was a lot for a (laughs) 17-year-old to go through, but in a very wonderful way. (laughs) That's so cool. That's so special. I love that. Um, what, what I'm hearing from you too, is like y- you are in, you have an ease about dreaming, you know, like, um, I think a lot of female athletes, a lot of like, you know, sport aside, like thinking of dreaming of what I could do, what I want to do, like they shortchange it because they're scared it won't happen or they're afraid of failing or they're worried what other people might think. So how have you just been able to set these dreams and chase them? It appears with ease. I know it's not always easy, but what's like your, your mindset around just setting these big dreams? Yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. And as you said, it is not as easy as it seems sometimes. And um, I'm much better at it now than I was, but the first hard lesson I had to learn was my worth is not tied up and whether or not I achieve a dream, whether or not I win or get, you know, a record or a medal, it's really hard to realize, especially if you're someone who is very good at your sport or is setting really high goals for yourself. You feel like if you don't achieve that thing, if you have a bad meet, one bad record, you know, one bad time that your worth is tied with that. So your worth is going to fall if you don't achieve that. And that's not true. You know, you are going to be loved just as much from the people in your world, in your little bubble, you know, you're going to be loved just as much by then. If you come in last and completely biff it, 
as they would love you if you, you know, came in first and made a record. And that was, that was hard for me to realize, not because it's a bad thing. It's a very good thing, but it's hard because you feel that in yourself. Sometimes you tie your own worth to that. And it's hard for you to accept that you will be loved regardless, you know, of how you do. But of course you sit and think about any of your friends, any of your family members, anyone in your circle, you think, of course, I would love them just as much if they didn't accomplish this giant thing. I would love them just as much. And so sometimes you have to sit in the mirror and go, they would, I would do that for them. Of course they would do that for me. Um, and then the other half of that too, is realizing that not like, if you set a big goal for yourself and you don't accomplish it in the way that you think you will, or way that you want to, that doesn't mean that's a failed goal. I mean, if you, if you set your goal on something and you work for it, and even if you don't make that, you don't make the team, don't make the record, don't make the medal, you still accomplished a ton. And that is still its own successive, you know, feats. And that can be hard for us to realize because we tend to categorize our life into different momentous moments. You know, if you decide to create a coffee shop and it only lasts for five months and they have to shut it down, that's not a failed business. That was a successful five-month run of something you wanted to do and something that you loved. And that's the same thing with our goals. And it's it's hard and humbling sometimes to sit back and realize, okay, this did not happen the way that I thought it did, the way I thought it wanted to, the way I thought that it would happen. But that doesn't mean that the whole journey to getting there was a failure. It can be a success in its own way, even if it's hard to accept that and to rewire your brain to acknowledge it as such. That's really good, Jessica. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> so what are you dreaming right now? You've accomplished, you've been a Paralympian twice. Mm-hmm. You are uh, an American record holder in the discus. Okay. So what is your next big dream? I have two big dreams. Okay. Um, the first one is to make the Paralympic Games in 2024, which is next year. That's a whole year and some change away, but it's coming up close. And it's not all guaranteed in my sport. It's something I have to work hard for every day, right up until a month before when the team is selected. And it's a it's a very scary goal for me to make, but I'm making it because I'm excited to work for that. And then the second goal is to throw the world record. I threw a world record in 2019 and 21, and recently my record fell, or 22, apologies, and then recently my record fell to my competitor from Poland, uh, Farsina, amazing athlete, love her to death. Uh, We've been playing leapfrog with our world records for a few years now, so I have a new mark to go for, and I'm excited to have that little fuel in my system, so to make the 24 games and to make the new world record, those are my two goals. (laughs) Right. Those are amazing goals and definitely will rally behind you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to know, like, what is it that you wish, uh, non-disabled athletes, coaches, people in general knew about, like, whether it's your prosthetic, whether it's your process, what is it like, you, like the dumb questions you wish we would stop? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, I appreciate all questions, even if they're dumb questions. Uh, something that I used to get a lot, particularly when I was uh, sprinting, was just about the mechanics of prosthetics. Competitive prosthetics are so different from our regular walking day prosthetics. And when I first uh, got introduced to them, 
I kind of got backlash from some people in my sport because it was a new thing and it was scary. And the the little cheetah legs or the curved J carbon fiber legs, they're phenomenal for us, but they can look really intimidating if you're not familiar. But you know, essentially that prosthetic that is mimics the human body, not and nowhere near perfectly, might I add, but it mimics the push that our ankle and our foot has. You know, you can go from a standing position to jumping up with your feet because your ankles can propel that. I have that on one side, my other side doesn't. And even with a running prosthetic, you have to put energy into it to get it to move that way versus I can do that with my left side without putting anything into that. So it's not a perfect system. Our prosthetics are nowhere near perfect, but they've grown so much and that like the technological advances are just insane. Uh, I mean, my first prosthetic was carved out of a hunk of wood. And now this one, the ones I have now are so advanced. So they can be a little bit scary for other people, which is completely understandable. I would probably feel the same way, <laughs> but they're a really good thing for us to have in the adaptive world. And they slowly but surely get us to a point where we can be competitive in the same way that we would be were we not disabled in the way that we are. They're not perfect, but they've made amazing, amazing advances. So don't be afraid if you ever come across someone in your sport that has it, don't be afraid to, you know, ask if you are curious. The person may not care to answer and that's perfectly fine, but we're not scary people. We're just regular people that have some very interesting parts in our bodies. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Uh, so you have recently become more of an advocate for your sport, for pair, for um, adaptive sports. Can you share a little bit um, more about that? Yeah. So obviously I'm very passionate about adaptive sports and para-athletes and the whole Paralympic world. And I've had the amazing, amazing honor in the past year to join a committee it's the first ever committee between, or the joining between the NCAA and the USOPC, United States Olympic Paralympic Committee, um, to establish a path for Paralympic athletes in the NCAA. This is huge because when I got back from the my first Paralympic Games, I had wrongfully assumed that I would have a place in college to compete. I thought I just competed at the highest level possible. You know, I should easily be able to find a team to compete with, you know, people that can train me. And that was not something I found as easily as I thought. Um, I did find an amazing place, Northern Iowa. I found amazing coaches there, but I was turned on by many other places before I found them. And with this committee, the Collegiate Advisory Council, I'm able to advocate for athletes who are in my position and create openings for coaches to be educated and for there to be basically a hub of information for anyone who has an athlete in their program or someone who is coaching an athlete, anyone who is a teammate of a para-athlete to go and find information. How do I train them? How do I approach them? What do I do in competition? How does this work? You know, what are the Paralympics and how does a whole adaptive world of sports, you know, how does it function? And so this journey I've been on with past year or two with this committee has been phenomenal. So we've made tons of legal changes for athletes and we have a long, long ways to go before adaptive athletes have all the same opportunities that non-adaptive athletes have, but it's been phenomenal to see all the growth and change. And even the change between my first games and my second games, 
seeing how my fellow teammates have been accepted into college programs and accepted into their um, respective teams. I mean, the change has been absolutely astronomical. And we had, I think, a 10 to 15% jump in athletes, para-athletes on Team USA's Paralympic team that were able to compete in college between my first games and my second games, which is a huge change. So I've had such an honor um, doing that. And then I've also, I also really appreciate being able to go and speak to schools. I uh, speak to a lot of elementary schools about my experiences being disabled and being an adaptive athlete. And uh, just, I think last week I was at my old elementary school in Cedar Rapids and I spoke to a class and it was so cool talking to them and showing them my prosthetics. And they had just read a book about a girl with an amputation. It was really cool for them to read that book and then see someone in real life who went through that. And I, I mean, I didn't have all those learning opportunities when I was their age. So it was amazing to see them do that. And I, I can only imagine all of the opportunities that the kids that would have disabilities that I had, you know, at that age, people now, I just can't imagine how much, how many more opportunities they will have than I even had. <laughs> That's pretty exciting, Jessica. You are making a way. You're not just finding a way, you are making a way. That's pretty cool. Thank you. <laughs> Those stories. So, okay. Um, I, when I was a, a track athlete, I did the heptathlon, hmm. seven events. So as we wrap up, I'm going to rapid fire you my heptathlon of questions. Okay. Okay. So you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Number one, what is your go-to snack? Ooh, fried apples. Really? Air fried apples. I love them. I've been making them a ton lately. <laughs> okay, do you put like cinnamon on them? Sometimes, but honestly, I like them plain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that answer. Okay, number two. What is your the number one song on your playlist? Ooh, probably Michael Bublé's Feeling Good. Fine. All right. When you're nervous, what is the mantra that you say to yourself? I think... I sit back and I thank everyone for who, you know, I think back and I think about everyone that brought me there. And I think about, you know, the community I have surrounding me and that calms me down. I say a little prayer of gratitude for my journey there. And that helps me, you know, realize that my strength is not just my own. I love that. Okay. Your, who is your favorite character from either a book or from TV? Oh, that's gotta be good old Captain America, Steve Rogers. <laughs> That's great. All right. And, um, okay. You can choose okay. to share a pet peeve or a hidden talent. Oh, I don't think I have any good hidden talent. So I'll do a pet peeve. I don't know if this really counts as a pet peeve, but for whatever reason, I hate the thought of cooking a Thanksgiving Turkey. I love cooking. I love cooking. I love everything about about like making Thanksgiving day meals, but for whatever reason, the thought of making a Thanksgiving day Turkey stresses me out and I will not do it. So that's, that's my holiday pet peeve. <laughs> Catering is always an option. Yes. <laughs> my motto right there. Right. <laughs> who, who is either now or was when you were a child, your sports hero? Oh, I've gone through so many, but right now, um, well for the past few years, really Allison Felix phenomenal athlete, phenomenal mother, phenomenal advocate. She is someone I will always look up to and admire. Have you gotten a chance to meet her? 
I have met her and it was amazing. <laughs> she is lovely in real life. Oh, even more lovely than I thought she would be. <laughs> oh, I, that makes me so happy to hear. To be honest. <laughs> I admire her for the same reasons. <laughs> so before the last question, I just want to just take a minute and just thank you. I've really been so happy to cross paths with you. I mean, my, so my track coach in college was actually your throws coach at UNI. So he was at Iowa state when I was there, he tried to convince me that I could be a thrower. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was for one of my events, but you know, (laughs) so I like when, when you were in college and he would share stuff, I was like following along and it was really cool to see your journey, but like, you're just even more inspiring in person. And I'm really excited to cheer you on, on your big dreams and um, support you in any way I can in your advocacy. I'm loving um, learning. Those are new learnings for me as well. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Okay. So the final question, this is the standing O podcast, um, really kind of flipping the whole standing ovation backwards. So instead of waiting for people to stand and give you the ovation for a job well done, it's kind of turning it inward and like learning that we can stand for ourselves and we can be our best, our biggest cheerleaders. So Jessica Himes, what would you say is your standing O moment? Hmm. My standing O moment, I mean, back when I was at my first Paralympic games and I ran into my family in the stadium for the first time, that was the moment it really dawned on me just exactly what I, you know, I was there, what I was there to do, but also who brought me there. It humbled me and reminded me that I have a whole whole village of people supporting me. And that is one of my favorite moments of my entire life. I can imagine how special. You seem to have just an amazing family and that's really cool. You really do. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you, Jessica. We're cheering for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Talk about making a way. Jessica may not have realized her dad's words were so impactful on her life, but just listening to her story, you can see nothing is impossible. She is just finding a way. Other things I took away were the impact of Jessica finding the love of sport on her own. She wasn't forced. She didn't feel pressure to be great or amazing. She made that switch from, this is fun, to, I want to win, all on her own. And when I talk to Jessica or I hear her speak, I don't hear about the setbacks or the hurdles that have stood or continue to stand in her way. I just hear the joy, the joy that fuels her forward. Lastly, I took away the importance of a circle, of your circle, of the support that surrounds you. We do absolutely nothing on our own. And Jessica's story and success is a testament to that. What did you take away? I'd love to hear your comments. Leave a review here on the podcast or find us on social media at ShePlaysNow. You can also find Jessica on Instagram at Jessie, J-E-S-S-I-E underscore Himes. That's H-E-I-M-S. So be sure to give her a follow. We've linked her social media in the show notes as well. Friends, remember that nothing is too broken, too impossible, you can find a way. Thank you for tuning in to the Standing O podcast, where our goal is to share stories and have conversations that win. You can support this goal and our mission as she plays by leaving a five-star review, giving us a follow, 
or even donating to our mission at sheplaysnow.com slash donate. Taking a cue from Jessica and chasing big dreams. I hope you are too. Until next time, this is Coach D and I'm cheering you on. Thank you.